because of what you've done, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are about halfway through our Sermon on the Mount series, so if you haven't been with us, I highly, highly, highly encourage you to go back and listen to some of the old sermons, especially last week. So uh, I wasn't uh, here, so I can easily say that and just totally encourage Anthony. I thought last week was profound. I listened to it again this week because I thought it was so good, and it was centered around this idea that at the end of the day, we really do things for only an audience of one, right? And it's not the person sitting next to you. But it's the person above. It is God. It's the one living inside you if you're here and you're a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit. We do things only for God. And so it is not for external praise from man. It is not so the people around you think you're more spiritual or holy or a better person. We do things to please God, to glorify God, to make much of God. And that's why we exist. Asher, everybody, just give it up. Yep. (laughs) We exist to glorify God and God alone. And so then our actions have to go through that lens instead of the lens of, I want to look good in front of my friends. If you're attending church every Sunday because, hey, you think that's what you're supposed to do so your parents aren't upset with you, or your kids have good morals growing up instead of you love Jesus, then you need to ask yourself some questions. Now, if you're here and and you're not a Christian, okay, that's a whole, man, thank you for being here. Thanks for asking questions. Thanks for coming and not having this all figured out. None of us do. But if we're here and we're Christians, today is going to be another day to wrestle with some hard sayings of Jesus. For us to truly analyze, well, what do we actually believe? For example, do we actually believe that right now, about three minutes ago, when I was praying and when most of us had our heads bowed, that the God of the universe who created you and me was actually listening? Do you actually believe that? That the God who created everything, who's all-powerful, all-knowing, sees into the deepest parts of you, that he actually heard us pray, and that he is well in his capability and desire to not just listen, but to respond. Do, do we, act, I mean, that sounds so fundamental to prayer, and I wonder when we truly get down to it, do we just think we're speaking to a wall? Or do we know that there's a living, breathing being who engages with us every time we talk to him? That literally, even as we have this conversation right now, it's not like he's not here. He is very much here, and he listens, and he engages. And any work that God does in the hearts of anyone in this room today is not done by my words or your obedience, but done by the Holy Spirit who does the work inside of us. Amen? And so let us wrestle with these things as we move forward. Now, I want to share, if I could, just kind of my history of prayer in my own life. I I didn't grow up a Christian. Many of you guys know that. But I remember growing up in the South, and everyone else was. And so my SBBA, uh, Slidell Bantam Baseball Association, uh, Rockies baseball team, when I was about eight years old, six years old even, I think, at the start of every game, we would pray the Lord's Prayer. Right? So the whole team would gather around, the other team would be doing the same thing, the parents would pretty much stop and pray along with the kids, like it was just culture to pray the Lord's Prayer. So I remember not being a Christian, not growing up in that, but I had to go home and ask my dad, hey, what's this thing we keep saying? They keep saying it, I don't know what it is, and so he pulls out this old book called the Bible, and then we, we read through it, and I learned the Lord's Prayer, and this was my first interaction with prayer. I didn't know anything about it. I wasn't really understanding what it was saying. I knew I had to do something with God. But then we kind of moved on, and then I became a Christian in college. And I remember this distinct moment where we're praying in a group setting, and we get done with that prayer, and some gal comes up to me, and she says, Vince, you're just so good at prayer. 
when you pray, the Holy Spirit is just resting on us, and I just see the hand of God moving in power. And I remember thinking, like, that's right. <laughs> you have good eyesight. And we delved into that further. And what we found out is the reason why she thought that was true is because um, I've boiled down to, I'm a communication major and I talk a lot, right? Um, I can use words quickly, I speak fast, and I speak loudly, and for some reason, those are the attributes of a prayer warrior, right? That, that if you can go quick and kind of bounce around a little bit and you're laying hands and there's oil, it's like, you're amazing! <laughs> and so I had that forming my understanding of prayer for a while. And Jesus is going to talk about both of these realities. That's why I bring them up to you. Just this last week, um, I'm seeing some people pray. And I'm just sitting back. And, and if you know me, it's hard for me not to talk, right? And so I'm just sitting back. And I didn't pray this entire time. And I'm just like sitting and praying alongside and, and, and just kind of seeing people engage the Lord. And it might have been the most profound prayer time I've ever had. And I didn't say anything. Because I think, maybe not for the first time, but I think what God is doing through, not just this text, but through this series, is constantly revealing more and more my need and dependence for him, constantly revealing more and more how much he is far more involved than I realize. And how every time when we actually get to pray, what we just said, that five minutes ago now, when we close our eyes and bow our heads, that the God of the universe who is living, breathing, and active and loves this world is listening and will respond. And, and, and so I've seen the Lord kind of slowly shape my understanding of what does it mean to talk and communicate with him. And I hope that he continues to do that, not just for me, but for all of us today, because I think we're supposed to pray far more than we do. And we're supposed to believe things about this communication better than we believe them. And it should have an impact, I think, in our world more so than it does. When we first moved here to start this church, almost four years ago now, we said two things about what we wanted to be defined by as a church. Now, obviously, the gospel, that was kind of presumed in this, but the two kind of, we said, if we want people to say something about what we do here at Redemption, here are the two things. One was discipleship. And, and honestly, it's pretty, we, we hear that enough, right? Like, people will say that. There's some neat things, mentorship, the way we intentionally invest in people, build up new leaders. That stuff has been said. What has never been said to me a single time by any other person in the city is that we are a prayerful people here at this church. And that was the other defining characteristic. Discipleship and prayer, and I've yet to hear it, and that is devastating for my heart, and it starts with me. It, it starts with the leadership here at the church. What are we doing? How much do we celebrate this reality to talk about God? And on and on that should trickle down into our people, and yet it doesn't. We don't talk about it that much, and that is on us. And so today, if I sound angsty, it's because I'm kind of frustrated with me and my engagement and my prayer life and how I've not allowed that to shape us as a people who are supposed to be caring for this city. So we're supposed to be investing in this town, and yet we don't talk to God about it. Crazy. It's just crazy. Okay, so that's kind of where I'm coming from. The last thing I'll say before we jump into the text, there was a, a clip that I watched this week, and um, I thought it was just, just, the idea was just really good, and I've seen it a few times now, but it kind of talks about the difference between a why and a what, right? That we have all these what's in our life that we do, um, but until we really truly define that why, the what's don't really have the same amount of bang for their buck, 
So, he, so here's what I mean. If, if I were to ask you to pray right now, so, uh, so Rain, go ahead and pray right now. Don't actually do it, but I'm saying th- rhetorically, I'm gonna go ahead and pray. You would just pray probably about whatever's just going on, right? But if I were to say, hey, Rain, um, guess what? The, the Lord, he came and delivered you from your sin. He set you free. The pain, the brokenness, any shame you've ever felt, you need not feel anymore. He lived the life you couldn't live. He died on the cross for you, and he defeated death so you could have new life. And now he's daily equipping you to be his daughter and his princess to reach out to the world. That you, as you walk with this light, would be a mission to this world to see better, to see flourishing, see goodness, and see salvation. And then I said, now I want you to pray, right? It would look a little different, right? You see, if, if, if I just say what, if I, we just came and say, hey, you need to pray more, pray more, it's in there. The Bible says pray unceasingly, just keep doing, we just read all the verses without understanding, why do we actually do this? Like, wh- what are we missing on the front end that I think causes our prayers to oftentimes fall flat, inconsistent, and if you're like me, just kind of all mostly focused on, hey, I'll pray this, but then I'm just going to do it myself anyway. So letting our why define the what. Letting what we believe about God and the gospel to influence at a apex level how we pray, okay, and the what's of our lives. So verse 7 starts off like this. If you want to turn to Matthew chapter 6, I'll give you a second. Matthew 6, starting in verse 7. Go and turn your Bibles there if you want to follow along with us. If not, um, I think we'll have it up for you as well, but please follow along if you have your word. Verse 7 says this. This is Jesus talking again to his disciples. He says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask him. Okay, so, okay, before, there's a huge presupposition here. Does anyone realize what the the presupposition of this text is and Jesus' encouragement to the people? Okay? When you pray... Right? So, so it's not, hey, if you're going to do this, you know, what, you know if, if you have this opportunity, if you carve out time, it's when you're doing this, right, church? If, so to the disciples, those who want to follow Jesus, when you pray, then pray like this. Here's a couple things what not to do. Don't think prayer is ultimately about you, okay? Prayer is not ultimately about us. We're not the one answering these prayers. We're just the ones saying them. And they're not dependent, again, on our eloquence, tone, or pitch. So it does not matter how you say them. It matters what's in your heart. How do we know that? Because God already knows what exists inside of you before you even ask it. I can't tell you how many times I've been in prayer circles where we're praying for people. And I'll hear, I've heard this like almost exact prayer multiple times, right? A guy will say, hey, what do you need prayer for? We'll get around a circle, lay hands on this person. They say, you know, like there's some financial problems right now. We're just hoping there's provision for that. Uh, I I really just want to kind of get rid of some of this anger issues. Um, And then, you know what, man? I've been having this really bad back pain. Like my back's just been killing me. Right, and so the prayer usually goes on like this: like Lord, we just we pray that you grant wisdom, we pray that you grant insight. God, would you give provision, and would your love be shown? And you kind of skin this stuff, and then all of a sudden, after they've prayed all the non-healing stuff, they get to the healing prayer, and all of a sudden they turn into Benny Hinn. Right, so then they go, and Lord. Would you come in power? Would you bless this man? And would the healing come in the power of God? 
And God, would you banish out sickness and get rid of it? And there's this yelling, and it moves fast, and it sounds as if it's more holy. And all you're doing when you do that is saying, prayer depends on me. It doesn't. You could stutter through the entire thing, and God will do what God will do. Why we feel that the way we say things to God who knows what's in our hearts matters, I do not understand, but I am so guilty of it. I, I, it's like when I get into these, I'm like, I just start going. I'm like, man, I'm feeling it. But it's like, no, wait, what is, he doesn't care. So, so we need to let go of this idea that prayer is, is about us. And it's about our ability to pray. It's, it's faithfulness. It's consistency. And we'll look at some other scriptures. It is not how eloquently you can communicate with God that will dictate what he does. This is really good news for all of us. Okay? Really good news for all of us. Because whether you're a brilliant communicator or you're a terrible communicator, God loves you and knows what's in your heart and will answer it according to his perfect will. The other one is that we think prayer is only a matter of ritual, okay? So these empty phrases that we heap up to God. This, this, I think, speaks to my childhood experience. And listen, I can't dictate. I don't know exactly what was going on in my coach's heart as we prayed that prayer. But again, as I looked around the baseball stadium every single week and we had everyone praying this prayer, I can only imagine that this was just in some ways just a ritual. This is what you do. Right? This is what you do before you eat a meal. This is what we do when we need to make, do a church transition so we can put the lights up and down, so let's pray and bow our heads. Uh, it's, it's what we do before a baseball game. It's what we do before an event. We need to, no, it's become oftentimes just this simple ritual and way for us to say, oh, I think this is what's supposed to happen right now. It shouldn't be that either. You see, Jesus here is, he's encouraging his disciples. Hey, you see those guys over there? And he's talking about these Pharisees. He, he's talking about these religious elite who have decided to pray in the streets loudly and fastly and so engaged and robust with cool movement and hands and oil. And so then everyone thinks they're the best Christians around, which then they would leverage for their own gain. And I think we can look at those guys and we can read this text and say, that's not me. Like, I'm not, I, I, don't, I haven't seen a single one of you yet with your hands in the air pray on the street corner here in downtown Flagstaff, okay? But again, as always, the Sermon on the Mount doesn't address our external, but more our internal. What, what's going on in our hearts? What do we believe about God? What do we believe about ourselves? What do we believe about prayer? Is he listening no matter what we say and how we say it? Is he engaged with us? And the answer is yes. But do not fall into these two major traps of thinking it's about you or it's about a ritual and you have to do it. Neither of those things communicate relationship very well. I do not love my wife. We do not talk with one another because I have to, right? If I did, that does not make me a good husband, it makes me kind of, I guess, like an obedient person, but th that's not love, right? That's not engagement. That is, that's just piety for the sake of piety. And that's not what we're supposed to have with the Lord. So he continues on here, verse 9. So after he sets up our heart, he's going to give us the how. how. How does this kind of work itself out? Verse 9, pray then like this. 
our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So here's like a big lens check for us in how we pray. Okay, and it's constantly, again, it's going to keep coming at our hearts because this heart thing tends to inform what we do. Again, the why informs the what. So the big lens here is the context of our prayer. And in the first two words, I think we get enormous context for how we pray. In the first word of the first prayer that Jesus tells us to pray, we get this word, our, okay? A communal word. I don't think non-intentionally chosen by God. I think Jesus in this omnipotence, in this brilliance is like, okay, let's understand something that if we live in a culture that constantly communicates you're the center of your world, we need to always be thinking that's not true. And so he says, our father. So whose father is it? Not just my father, not just your father, but is our father. God is a communal God for a communal people. And so prayer is not meant to be regulated to just yourself. Now let me be clear. This doesn't mean you're only supposed to pray in group settings, right? Jesus retreated all the time to go and be with God and to pray with him and to spend time with him and to hear from him. And so it's not just pray in group settings, now, again, if that was my relationship, some of you, that's what you do, right? You don't have a huge prayer life at home, but you do it in the group so as to be seen. But again, what type of relationship is that? If, if I only talked to Verity when we were in a group setting, how would our relationship be? Like, if her and I are at home this afternoon, okay, and she goes, hey, babe, how are you? And I say, not now. At small group Tuesday then we'll talk, right? So store it up, because I'm not chatting, right? Am I not the worst husband ever? Does that not indict me into saying, what is wrong with you? You only want to talk to this person you say you love in a group setting when other people are around so they can hear you. I'm not trying to, I'm not calling into question your salvation. You might love Jesus, but I do wonder if the only time you ever pray is in a group setting, what does that say about your relationship with Jesus? And I literally mean that. Ask yourself, what does that say? I'm not telling you what that says. I'm asking, what does that say about your relationship with Christ if the only moment you ever talk to him is in a group setting? You would never do that with another person in your life. And if you did, then that is awkward. Talk to the Lord. Now, in the midst of that, back to our point, our Father. I think, I think Jesus is very smart, right? He knows the proclivity of the heart of man to only think about us, to think of what's best for us, to pray in such a way we're going to pray for things that benefit us, that they're going to be out, out my, you know, but when I say us, I mean like me, right? So when I pray, God, give me this, do this for me, allow this to happen in my life, Grant me this thing, grant me this person, grant me this, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think he knows that we tend to be a selfish people. And so I think when he prays, he's like, listen, start off our Father. Realize you are connected to people and that I am a God that is far bigger than just you. That we would pray in such a way where we're not just focused on us, but we're focused on the people around us. So as we pray, we're praying for the ones to the left and to the right and the people that are in our city, in our country, in our world, constantly thinking through, Lord, I want you to do all of these things. I'm going to pray all of these things, not just for me, but for people. Because you love and we enter into the heart of God who loves everything and everyone. Okay. So um, where are we at? Next one. Yep. No, second part. Second word is Father. 
So this this our idea, so communal, the other context I think is familial. So then when we pray, I think if we miss the context of God being a father, I think we miss the understanding and the context for how we're supposed to pray. So it's not just this communal vision, it is a familial vision of we are talking to God who calls us children, those in the family of God who have given their lives to Christ. We are adopted sons and daughters of him, and so as we pray, we pray to him as a father. Now, um, being now a father and then also having a good father when I was growing up here on this earth, not like good, good father, Chris Tomlin, but good father here, I started thinking about what does this look like in regards to how do we pray in the context of our lives. And, and here's what I've come with. I think the goal for our prayer life and how we are to pray, the context for our prayer should be, our identity-wise, a, um, a mature toddler, Okay? I think we need to be mature toddlers when it comes to prayer. And here's what I mean. So my son Finley just, uh, just turned two about a month ago, and he is amazing at dependency, right? Like he fully realizes he can't do much by himself, and so he asks mommy or daddy to do everything, right? So daddy do this, daddy do this, daddy sit, daddy blocks, daddy food, daddy hungry, daddy, 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 daddy right? It's adorable. And I love it because it shows just his engagement, his understanding of my role in his life. But what my son is terrible at is hearing no, okay? Much like all of us adults in the room as well. What he's really bad at is hearing no. So I say, he says, Daddy, uh, you know, it's like 10 o'clock at night. when He's not up that late. It's 8.30, right? Daddy, uh, chocolate cake, right? Daddy, chocolate cake. Daddy, chocolate cake. And I say, no, Finley, it's late. You have to go to bed, uh, so no chocolate cake. He's like, uh, ah! <laughs> and just tears and crying and waterfalls, and he falls on the ground. And you're like, are you having a seizure? And what is, <laughs> get up. Gosh. He cannot handle no. And, and so, hear me, I, I think there's something we're supposed to learn from Finley, which is the dependency on God. Like an absolute and complete understanding that as, as, as Finley walks through this world, he's thinking, man, I, I need this guy. Like I need him for everything. I don't eat unless he gives me food. I, 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 don't, I don't get over to this area unless he brings me there. Now he can walk so a little bit less, but you get my point. Right? I don't get to go to the park unless he drives me. I don't get to and on and on and on and on and on. Right? I don't have this unless dad intervenes unless dad is providing. I think we're supposed to learn from that and say there's this dependency we're supposed to have like a toddler. Now, I think there's a maturity, though, that comes with age that we also need to learn. So now as a, uh, now I you know I have a father and he's been a good father. My dad's been incredible, has been an incredible influence in my life. But I remember throughout the years, especially I think about in high school when I would ask my dad for something and he would say no, I still kind of had this childish, well, I'm upset with that. And so we would get in fights and arguments and things like that. But now that I've grown into hopefully a more mature man, when my dad gives me advice, when he says no, when he says yes, when I ask him questions and he says something that I would see differently, I trust him because I have a view of who he is to me. So it's not, it's not just this, I, I no longer depend on my dad the same way, but I have such a complete and robust faith in that what he says to me is for my best. 
So when he says no or gives me advice that I think is different from what I would do, I say, you know what? I'm smart enough now. I've seen enough life. You've done enough in my life to say, man, you're probably right. And so I think we're supposed to be mature toddlers with a complete 100% dependence on God, but mature enough to know that when he says no, he wants what's best for us. And so when we pray, we come into this with that lens. So we ask for his kingdom to come and his will to be done and for these needs and these wants and things like that. We can say, God, I, I need it, so I'll ask for it, but whatever you come with, I will truly believe you are for me. We usually pick one or the other, and we have to have both. Okay. That is the context, I think, of how we pray. And so he says, our Father who art in heaven, sorry, who in, our Father in heaven, still stuck in me from Slido Baseball Bantam Association. Um, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I love that we got rid of the art, but we kept the hallowed, as if that's less weird. Um, Hallowed just means gloried, right? Celebrated. Much be given to your name, right? So right in the beginning, it's our Father. We understand the context of who we're praying, why we're praying, and says, glory to you, man. But before anything else, glory to you. Like, make much of your name, what you have done. Exalt in God. We pray because God, because God is, because God has done, and on and on and on. That is why. Right off the bat, to set the posture of our hearts is to know that at the end of the day, everything we do, everything we say, every time we try and be obedient, it's for God's glory and not for our own. I love that he starts off with that, and he's Jesus, so he knew what he was doing, okay? I've heard people say this feels like they're buttering up God a little bit, right? That if they start off their prayer by saying, hey, God, you're amazing, love you, thanks for doing what you did. Like, it's the equivalent of, you know, like when I walk up to Verity and I want to go play soccer on some random weeknight, say, hey, babe, new sweater? <laughs> no? looks new because you're beautiful. Or, you know, it's not even good. It doesn't even make sense. But in my mind, I'm like, dude, I crushed that. Like, this is green light, right? And the whole thing in, that, in, in this is, it's, it's about what's going on inside of my heart. So if I'm doing that and I'm just trying to scheme my wife, yeah, that's a problem. And if you're trying to scheme God, if you find that your prayer life is filled on the front end with these kind of platitudes to God that you don't even really believe, you're just buttering up God. You think if you say certain things to make him feel good about himself, then he'll give you stuff. He's God. Like he owns you, let alone every resource in this world but we give glory to his name because he deserves it. Not, not because we'll get something out of it. That is a plague of the church that we feel like we, we do this so that. It's no, no, we just do it because we do it because he deserves it. Glory to God this morning, okay? Verse 10, so we start off with his glory. Verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now this, this request, I don't think we understand the depths of how scary this request is, okay? God, who is all powerful, we just said glory to you, this is who you are, your father, right? Your decisions are best. We're laying this all before him, it says your kingdom come, your will be done. Do you realize how scary that is? Because when the kingdom of God comes, here's what this naturally means, if the kingdom of God comes, the kingdoms of the world must die. 
That as his kingdom invades this world, the kingdoms of this world must shrink and must die. And so those of us who live for our own kingdoms, right, we, we try and build up our own status, our own wealth. It's for us. It will die as you pray this. And that is terrifying. When the kingdom of God comes, it touches everything in this world. It, it, it's not just salvation. Every king that I know, which is zero, but every king I've read about cares about everything that happens in his kingdom. He doesn't just care if the people are eaten well. He doesn't just care if the people are etc. Et he cares about it all. He cares about the education system. He cares about the political situation. He cares about the people and are they eating and engaged and they experiencing life abundantly and full. A good king cares about every aspect of his kingdom. And so when the kingdom of God comes with King Jesus, it influences and says something about every part of this world and every part of your life. So when you say and I say, Lord, let your kingdom come. That is a frightening and terrifying prayer because it's asking for him to say something about every part of you. And when it comes, it will crush the other parts of your kingdom you're trying to hold on to. And so, Stu, you still want to pray this. Jesus tells us to. But do we, do, do we still, do we want that, right? And we, we started off this series in the Beatitudes by saying the Beatitudes, when they talk about, man, blessed is this, blessed is that, they are showing us what the good life in this world actually looks like. And it is vastly different from the world. And so if you want and you desire and you crave and you want to continue to live in the kingdom that you're building for yourself here, do not pray this because he will come and he does not take prisoners. He just comes and he will destroy the idols of our lives. And that's why I think we need to pray it more and more and more because idols destroy and Jesus revives. Okay. So we want to pray this, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. And, and just a flash forward, if I may, Jesus in the garden, he repeats this multiple times before his father. Lord, I don't want to go through with this. Like, like, honestly, Jesus, right? The perfect Savior of the world in the garden before he's about to be crucified for the sins of mankind. God, is there another way? God says, no. Okay, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. Let me usher this in. So we have not just this guy who's just teaching us great things, but the one who has fully lived it unto death. And he's our example He's our power. He's the one we live for. Okay. So do we still want to pray this? Now, with all of this in mind, okay, if all of this in mind, right, we pray to a God who deserves glory. We are called to then live that out on mission, right? Prayer is about him, not us. It's, a, it's not a ritual, but a conversation. His kingdom and his will will trump our will and our kingdoms. Now, if all of this is true, like if we can resolve all of this and reconcile all of this, say, that's what I want, now he finally gets to the content of your prayer. We tend to focus on the content without ever addressing any of this front end stuff. 
We got to start there, but now what does he say about, what do we pray about? Verse 11, give us our, give this day our daily bread. Okay, now, we often, I'd say when we think through prayers, they're, they're, they're usually filled with a ton of wants, not a ton of the necessity stuff. And I began to think of why that is, and, and it makes sense. Living in 2016 in, in the United States of America, where most of us in the room, not all of us, okay? Most of us in the room, we don't need to, well, at least we don't feel like we need to pray for necessity because we've got full pantries and we've got decently full bank accounts. Some of you students are like, that's not true at all, right? We have decently full bank accounts. Some goes bad, we can probably pay for it, right? We, we've allowed ourselves, and this is not a bad, hear me, this is not a bad thing to have that. But when that becomes your dependency, then that's when we start getting in trouble here, Okay? We've created kind of a culture in our hearts, in our minds, in our churches where we don't even need to pray for necessity anymore because we have such an overabundance. And I don't think that's right. What, what, what if we started thinking through, what do we do with this abundance? How do we start giving it away? Time, resource, money. So that this becomes a needed prayer for us. I cannot, I cannot remember the last time I said, God, make sure I have food today. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean I should give away all my food so that I don't have any food and then he has to bring manna from heaven. But maybe I would trust him to do that. Hopefully. Probably not, actually. Because I don't even know what it means to pray for that necessity. Now, this bread idea, I think, goes far beyond food. And so here's why I say this. I think there's a more robust vision for what does it mean in the content of our prayer beyond just, God, make sure I have something to eat today. Make sure I have provision. And I have a quote, one of my favorite quotes uh, now. I just, <laughs> just read it like two weeks ago, but it has ascended to that level. And this is from Martin Luther, and he says this. He says, everything included in the necessities and nourishment for our bodies, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, farm, fields, livestock, money, property, an upright spouse, upright children, upright members of the household, upright and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, decency, honor, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like are all encapsulated in pray for your daily bread. In other words, bread is not merely the private concern of those who need something to eat, it is far broader than this, including far more than bread and far more than isolated individuals before God. Our daily bread is something friends, neighbors, communities, economic situations, and governments affect collectively. Christ's prayer for daily bread, then, is a prayer for food and clothing, but also for good neighbors, good rulers, and good conscience as we face need and want and hope together. God, I love that. And if it wasn't so long, I'd read it like eight more times and just pray and we'd be done. That when we pray and we're asking, so when you guys are, now you leave, okay, so okay, God, form this in my heart, maybe pray this way, this is the context. And so now he's moving to content. What do I pray for? What do I ask? I mean, let it be far more robust than God, just give me what I need today or give me what I want today. Let, it, let, you, let your eyes and your vision be far broader to see that it touches every aspect of creation. So what you're truly praying for here is far more than just your daily bread, but for the daily provision of God to carry out his mission of restoration from this day until the end of time. That's what you're asking for. 
And so honestly, yes, we do need food so we have energy so we can live and go share the gospel. We do need food so we can live, so we can go to our jobs and be faithful stewards of our jobs and resources that God has given us. We do need food so that we can care. And so that is all true, but it is far more than that. It's far more than just the once in your life. I think we need to start asking ourselves a different question. It's not, what do I need so that my life can continue as it is today? It's, Lord, what do I need so that I can be your disciple in this world? It's a different way of praying. If I just look at my life and think through necessity and what I need right now, well, I need to keep paying my mortgage. I need to keep putting on food on the table for my son, for, you know, care for my wife. I need to do these things. I need to pay the bills. I need to show up to work. So I need gas for my car. These are all needs, right? But what would it be, and how does it change if I start saying, like, God, what, what, what are you, else are you asking of me? And what do I need to become that? God, what do I need from you for me to truly be your disciple who is called into all the world? Constantly listening to God and saying, okay, what, what do you have for me next? And what's next? And what do I need to accomplish that? Because I don't have those things yet. I don't have an abundance of those things. At least not in all situations. God, I, I need more faith. Because, man, when you call me to do something, sometimes I'm terrified and I say no. God, I, I need more conviction from you. I need you to call me out more often in my sins so that I'm a better husband and father. God, God, and, and listen, God, I need more finances so that I can be more generous. Like, I, I know some people, even people in this room, man, they've got, they've got a ton more money than I do, but they're also far more generous than I am. So, so hear me when I say, like, this is not a, I don't want anything, and this is not a poverty gospel thing. It's whatever God has given and provides, you are to be his disciple with. So, Lord, give us what we need that we would be obedient in everything you've called. Okay. Let's pray that way. All right. Um, we're going to wrap it up here in these last uh, few verses. And usually you kind of see verse 12 and verse 13 broken up, right? So, so usually it is forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors and lead us on temptation but deliver us from evil. Uh, usually those two, those two ideas are separate. And I think there's some separate pieces, and maybe I'll talk about that for just a moment, a little bit, but I almost feel like they're supposed to be grouped together. Because God, Jesus, does something very interesting in this sermon. As he's wrapping up how this whole prayer, he finishes up the prayer with, and, and, and uh, leads not to temptation, but delivers from evil, and his first post, this is how you pray uh, verse, or, or thing he says, is in verse 14. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And so there's this interesting thing that Christ seems to do here, where he talks, okay, this forgiveness thing, for, so pray this way, forgive us as we've forgiven our debtors, and then he gets into, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, and then he goes back to forgiveness. So it, it seems like he's almost trying to create this single thought. And, and so I wonder if we think through that context, if maybe we understand the depth of verse 12 a little better. So as we're praying, we've just asked for God to do all this stuff, and, and it comes to this moment of, God, but make me right with you. And notice, forgive me as we have forgiven our debtors. 
this should naturally, and I guarantee for everyone listening, would have called an analyzing of exactly how they've done that. Are there people in your life that you are mad at, angry at, hate, frustrated with, think they're in sin, you're in sin against them, you gossip, slander, malice, deceit, betrayal, on and on and on and on. They have done something to you. You have said, no, I'll let you sit in that, even on the day today when you fight with your spouse, best friend, roommate, son, daughter, whatever, and then you just let them feel bad because they hurt you. All of that is from Satan. Jesus, please forgive me as I've forgiven the people around me. That is another scary thing to pray because I am one who loves to win an argument. I am one who loves to make others feel that I won. Okay? Hear me, that is a terrible thing. It is awful. I'm that competitive. I got to win every fight. And then I go and pray. Jesus, hey man, Forgive me the way I've forgiven these people. Forgive me the way I've let this go. If if he completely acted on that, I'm in trouble. And I I think so are the rest of us. Now, some of you, honestly, there's a few people, you're so sweet. I don't know, like, I hurt you and you say sorry. You know, so you're probably good. But for the rest of us... We're in trouble if he says, like, all right, man, then you want that, then you'll get it. You want that, then you'll get it. And so, again, I think then verse 13, right? This prayer then, so, so God, okay, I, I think probably what happened, I think God, made, Jesus, and knowing the hearts of man, knowing the hearts of the disciples, says, hey, forgive us as we've forgiven others. And then he, I think he goes to verse 13 and says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I think the evil that is primarily, not just, but primarily being brought up here is an unforgiving heart. Is saying, God, I, I, I don't want that, but Lord, please keep me from these moments because I will fail. And I think that's why he comes back to verse 14. He says, for if you forgive others, then Heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you do not, then neither will he. Whew, that's heavy. So a couple things, because this is, that's, I mean, that's the last verse from this text. So, so it doesn't end with, and Jesus loves you. <laughs> like, he doesn't end with, hey, and I love you, so we're good. Don't worry about it. No, he just drops it there. Like, he, it, so what happens, I think you can easily go, wait, so is this, is this a workspace thing? Like, so it, it reads like, if I, don't, if I don't forgive someone else, then I'm, I'm, he's not forgiving me, I'm going to hell. Like, that's, so what do we do with that? How do we live in this, this tension, this wrestling? And guys, every minute of every day, it's the cross. I mean, and I, that, I mean, this probably was obvious to you, right? Like, especially if you come to this church, so we just land the same place every single week. It's Jesus, right? It's the cross. The cross is where we find this reality fleshed out for the sake of man. Because everyone, right? Okay, hear, hear me. Everyone that is on that cross, or, or sorry, everyone that is at the base of that cross is lobbing insults at our Savior. You think you're God? Come on down from there. Oh, oh, you're the king of the Jews, you say. Well, look at you now. Prior to that, right, beating, scourging, a crown of thorns put on his head to mock his kingship and his kingdom, which we pray for. Jesus on the cross, 
like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus from the cross does not shoot accusation, but rather forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. In the cross, we see the perfect confluence of this moment where the Savior of the world did what we cannot do, which is always forgive. His, his sheer embodiment, the re, why he's there is because he knows we can't live 13 or 12 through 14 out well. So he had to come and forgive. He had to die so we wouldn't have to when we love him. You see the profound nature of what it means then for the Christian that if you want to pray, if we want to talk to God, then man, you better know the gospel. You better reflect, you better think on, you better pray about, you better talk to, you better talk to others about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus because without it, he is closed off from you, he's closed off from me, we do talk to a wall. But because that's not what he did, because God, for some reason, loved you and loved me and loved this crazy world filled with sin so much, he decided to embody what we could not and go to the cross and die the death we deserved. And so it is the gospel that now frees us to be able to pray this prayer day in and day out in full assurance of faith that even when we fail, we're still his. So the only encouragement that we really have at the end here is just love Jesus more. Now, that should mean some things, right? If the Sermon on the Mount is teaching me anything, is that my proclamation of my love of Christ, that means stuff. I wish it, at times I wish it didn't. Like I wish I could operate in my own kingdom and still kind of just have this thing with Christ. Like, that's not the way this works. My acknowledgement and my love, my profession of faith in him must, again, influence every part of who I am. And so, man, I should be reading my Bible and praying every day. As, as kind of, right, as almost legalistic as that term for some reason in, in many circles, even in, at different parts of my life, has become I'm like, oh, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to church. You, know? you do if you love Jesus. Open up your word. Pray. Like, the, the, the encouragement is just real simple. It's reflect on the gospel, and we see the gospel continuously as written through the Bible. And we learn about it more and more as we talk to and intercede and have relationship with God through prayer and through people in this community and beyond. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you, honestly, choose someone in the room today, okay? If you came here by yourself, if you want to be so bold as to choose the random person that you greeted today, that'd be awesome. But if not, find someone else in your life. And every single day this week, or sorry, this month, I'm going to call 30 days on you. Ask each other, even if it's a text message, that's fine. Did you pray today? That's it. If you feel weird about the language, did you talk to God today? I mean, just real simple. That the people of God don't talk to the God they say they believe makes no sense. So let's not be those people. Let's pray. Let's talk. Let's intercede on behalf of other people. 
Philippians 4, 6, not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and, and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. Ephesians 6, 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that the end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Constantly let us be a people of prayer. And it starts with what's going on in here, what we believe about God, the context of our lives, and then content-wise that we just intercede, we supplicate, we move forward. I encourage you to find someone and just call them to prayer. It's that simple. But it's because of the gospel. It's because of Jesus. Celebrate him as we sing. Like, we're getting ready to sing. Celebrate Jesus. Hallow Jesus and what he's accomplished today. Can we do that? Yeah, amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace this morning. God, without it, we're just hosed. We we just don't stand a chance. We thank you for the cross. Thank you for the gospel. Without it, I I mean, I can only just imagine, God, I would just be crushed from the weight of the commands, not just of this text, but of the, really the whole scriptures. So God, will we just learn to love you more? Understand the gospel in more deep and profound ways? God, if we need to, I think, I pray for those Christians who've been Christians for a long time in here. And maybe have just forgotten some of the simplicity of the gospel, the beauty of that, that initial, that early understanding of just kind of what you've done and what you've come, you return them to that just for encouragement. God, I pray for those who come here today who, who don't know you or didn't know you when you showed up. And Lord, if, I just pray as, as you've come and rescued me and many others in this room, God, that your gospel, your good news, that in the midst of all of our failures, not just in this area, but in all of our life, God, that you died for our sins, you rose on the third day to give us new life. God, and you call us to far more abundance than, than this world could ever offer. God, I pray that that message, if it resonates in the hearts of those here who don't know you, God, would you save, uh, would you restore, and would you fill them with your spirit? And God, would they be yours? Jesus, you've heard this prayer from Finley and I for about six months now. God, we just, I pray it over our congregation. I pray it over myself this morning. And uh, for those of you who wonder, it's from the Jesus Storybook Bible. and says this. It says, hello, Daddy. We want to know you and be close to you. Please show us how. Make everything in the world right again and in our hearts too. Do what is best, just like you do in heaven. And please do it down here too. Please give us everything we need today. Forgive us for doing wrong, for hurting you. Forgive us just as we forgive other people when they hurt us. Rescue us, Lord. We need you. We don't want to keep running away and hiding from you. Keep us safe from our enemies. You're strong, God. You can do whatever you want. You are in charge. Now and forever and for always. We think you're great. And all God's people said, Amen.